I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about new grants, Kagan's recusal in a case that's already been argued, and we'll interview law professor Randy Barnett. So the big news out of the court this week is that the court has entered the digital age. It's now requiring electronic filing of documents for parties who are represented by a lawyer. Pro se litigants such as prisoners can still file on paper. So now cert petitions, merits briefs, and other documents will be available directly on the court's website. So you don't have to go to SCOTUS blog, although, you know, we still love SCOTUS blog. Most importantly, you can see the... Um, certification of word count. Yeah. I've always been very concerned with that. Yes, we we definitely want to check out the word count of every brief that's been filed. So back in 2014, uh, Chief Justice Roberts issued a report announcing that the court would be developing an online filing system. And he explained in this report that courts may have practices that seem archaic and inefficient, and some are. But others rest on traditions that embody intangible wisdom. So he explained that courts are cautious about changing systems that work well until we're satisfied that we're introducing change for the good. So I think this is probably change for the good. And if you want to read more about it, a friend of the podcast, Bob Barnes, has an article in The Washington Post this week. So in other news, the court granted cert in three new cases, and they should be scheduled for argument sometime between February and April. And they're all free speech cases, which I think um, makes the total six for this term, which is a lot. Yeah, Justice Kennedy uh, must be loving this term. So the first one is National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra. Uh, People are calling it NIFLA versus Becerra. I don't really like that acronym, so that's not what I'm going to call it. Uh, And the issue is whether the state of California can require pregnancy centers to provide patients with information about the state's free or low-cost abortion program. So the issue here is is whether this violates the, the free speech rights of the physicians at uh, at pregnancy centers that are um, opposed to to provide uh, to doing abortions. So states can regulate the speech of licensed professionals, but it becomes problematic when the state is seeking to favor one viewpoint. So as an amicus brief for our friends at the Cato Institute explains, under California's law, clinics that provide abortions must tell their patients uh, I'm sorry, clinics that don't provide abortions must tell clinics uh, clients where they can get one. But there isn't a similar requirement for clinics that don't refer to adoption agencies to tell their patients how they can uh, contact one. So the California legislature passed this law in the aftermath of the Center for Medical Progress videos detailing Planned Parenthood's purported sale of aborted uh, baby's body parts, uh, which is was really disgusting. But it's interesting that this is how the state uh, legislature in California chose to respond to those allegations. Because, of course, it did. Yeah. <laughs> so this will be, uh, I, I'm sure, a very closely watched case as as any that ha- uh, any that have anything to do with abortion um, are. So next up, the court granted Minnesota Voters Alliance against Mansky. It's um, our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation's case, so we're very happy for them. Um, but there's a Minnesota law that forbids voters from wearing um, political badges, political buttons, or other political insignia at the polling place on Election Day. It's a pretty uh, broad law that prohibits any material designed to influence or impact Um, voting or promote a group with a recognizable political view. So um, Andrew Sillick, I think that's his name, 
how you pronounce it. He attempted to vote in the 2010 election, and he was wearing a Tea Party shirt that said "Don't Tread on Me." It had a Gadsden flag on it, and then he had a button produced by his nonprofit, the Minnesota Voters Alliance, that that stated "Please ID me," um, purportedly, you know, because he's in favor of of voter ID law laws. Yeah, so I think it would be one thing if if we're talking about poll workers who were wearing shirts that said, you know, vote for this Republican or vote yes on this initiative. But when you're talking about, and, and you know, just a citizen who's come to cast his ballot and he's wearing something that doesn't specifically say, like, you should vote this way, I, I guess I don't see the problem with it. Yeah. And so Minnesota argues that the law is reasonable to ensure people can vote without confusion, distraction or distress. And I think that's what <laughs> what you're getting to here. Like, it's one thing if, like, the person who's, like, giving me my ballot is, like, you know— vote for so-and-so and and it's like really big on a shirt and it's kind of intimidating but it's another if like my neighbor joe is on his like tea party t-shirt like i don't i'm not in distress like seeing that yeah the gadsden flag is not very distressing in my (laughs) opinion kind of funny um but the eighth circuit upheld this ban um so now Selig has asked the Supreme Court to, term, to determine that the law is substantially overbroad under the First Amendment. Um, at least 10 states have pretty broad brand, uh, bans on political wear like this. So this decision could have a, um, a big effect on a lot of states. Um, and then the third case the court granted was Lozman against City of Riviera Beach, Florida. Um, so Florida man is back in this case. <laughs> this guy has the most interesting facts in all his cases. He's a big uh, critic of local government and eminent domain uh, down in Florida, and he's always he's always stirring up stuff. So this is his second time that he's at a case at the Supreme Court, which is pretty unusual for for any one individual to have two cases go to the Supreme Court. Yes. So this guy Fane Lozman um, was at the Supreme Court a few years ago. Um, where the court determined that his houseboat, his floating house, was not a vessel for purposes of federal <laughs> maritime law. Um, but this case is completely different. Um, in, in it, he alleges that he was arrested in retaliation for speaking out against the government in violation of his, his First Amendment rights. So um, we're going to keep an eye on this case just um, – just because of, of Mr. Lozman. And we'll continue to keep an eye on the Florida Man uh, Twitter account, which <laughs> details you know things that only happen in Florida. <laughs> so, Tiffany, you saw the news about uh, Kagan recusing in the Jennings case? Yes. So this week, Kagan's chambers gave notice to parties that she was now recused from deciding Jenny, Jennings against Rod- Rodriguez, which is a case dealing with what sort of um, processes certain aliens who are detained um, by the U.S. get. Uh, the clerk's of the court's letter um, said that Kagan had just learned that while serving as the Solicitor General, she authorized the filing of a pleading in an earlier phase of the case. Um, so I'm I'm surprised that this just now came to her attention. You'd think, you know, she'd have a pretty good handle on on what sort of issues she had, you know, signed off on or been involved in when she was SG. Yeah, and that's why this is so significant because the court already heard Jennings last term and decided the case four to four. Um, which is why it reheard arguments this term. Um, but you know, all cases that are four to four don't have to be um, have to be reargued. So um, if the if the court hadn't decided to reargue this, that decision, um, the lower court decision, would have stood in that case, and Kagan would have um, had cast a, a valid vote. So that's why this is like it's pretty problematic. Yeah, and not to pick on Justice Kagan, but. Uh, 
early in her tenure on the court, um, when the when the justices were hearing the Fisher case for the first time, the racial preference case out of Texas, there were no indications that she was going to recuse herself. And our our colleague Hans von Spakovsky wrote a uh, an article for NRO talking about the fact that she had signed off on the government's amicus brief in the case as the Solicitor General when uh, when the case was at the Fifth Circuit. And then, lo and behold, after his article was published, uh, then she recused herself uh, from from being involved in the case going forward. Yeah. And it's, it's not just Justice Kagan. Um, Justice Breyer recused after oral arguments um, in recent years when he found out his wife owned stock that would be affected by the outcome of the case. Okay. Well, you know, Justice Breyer's wife, you know, member of British nobility, she probably has a lot of holdings that he, you know, he may not know <laughs> the full extent of her uh, of her wealth. Yeah, but you have people for this. It's true. You do have like, people. It's, it's too important. Um, and then just last term, Chief Justice Roberts uh, recused after oral arguments in a case after learning that he had a conflict um, as well. So all of these examples just call into question the justice's protocol for for determining conflicts. Um, yeah, they don't always make it public why they've recused in a case. So sometimes it leaves us kind of scratching our heads. Uh, but sometimes things come out, you know, in, in the course of the news cycle. Yeah, that I'm sure our friends at, at Fix the Court are coming up with all sorts of, um, of new ways that the justices could... Um, could try to handle this because it's it's important to remember that they're not bound by um, like lower court judges um, by certain laws and and protocols. They don't have the same sort of systems. That's right. So next up, we're going to talk with Randy Barnett. We're pleased to have Randy Barnett with us today. He's a professor at Georgetown Law, a scholar of originalism, and a prolific author. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Randy. Well, thanks for having me, Tiffany. Um, so you've written extensively about the topic of originalism. Why should we care about the original public meaning of the text of the Constitution? Because the Constitution provides the law that governs those who govern us. Uh, it's not the law that governs us. It's the law that governs the people who govern us. And as a result, they, can know, they should no more be able to change the law that governs them without going through the amendment process or the legislative process which is the amendment process, then we can change the laws that govern us. We, if we, can't have, we don't live by living speed limits. When we hit a speed limit and the speed limit's unreasonably low, as unfortunately many of them are, we have to go through the legislative <laughs> process to get that speed limit changed. And so too should those who are governed by law, uh, which are the government, that are, and the Constitution's there to protect us in this way. And, and all that means is that the meaning of the Constitution must remain the same until it's properly changed. And that's originalism. The meaning of the Constitution must remain the same until it's properly changed. So there are some lib- uh, liberal originalists out there. What's your take on them? Well, I think there are – on the one hand, there are elements of the Constitution that I think if properly construed would lead to progressive or contemporary liberal results. Um, and there are conservatives who resist the original meaning of the Constitution – uh, because they would lead to progressive originalist results. For example, there are many conservatives who resist enforcing or having anything to do with the Ninth Amendment that says the rights reta- – that refers – says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people and the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment that says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. There are conservatives who don't like those provisions because they think it would authorize judges, for example, to protect liberty in ways that that would go too far. Um, and if you were a progressive originalist, you might pay a lot more attention to those clauses. As Elena Kagan has said, we're all originalists now. 
Uh, she did say that, and I'm glad she said it, and I love quoting her saying that. <laughs> but I think what she really was talking about in that quote was sort of the hardwired parts of the Constitution, which are bicameral legislature, presentment to the president, uh, the more structural features of the Constitution that are rule-like. Uh, I think that's what she meant. But that's a, that's that's tremendous progress that yeah. somebody as formidable as she would admit that those provisions should be interpreted according to their original meaning. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Um, so as a follow-up, you started a program at Georgetown for law students called Originalism Boot Camp. Um, tell us about why you started this and some of the highlights of the program. Well, it's a wonderful program. I'm so excited about it. It is at Georgetown, but it's for students from around the country. I encourage people who are listening to this to go on our website, uh, Google the Georgetown Center for the Constitution and the Originalism Boot Camp, uh, and apply uh, if you're a law student or someone who is uh, has reached our requirements, uh, we are there to teach state-of-the-art originalism, um, uh, including uh, divisions amongst originalists. And we have some of the leading originalist theorists who lecture there, uh, including uh, 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 myself and Larry Solom and Will Bode and uh, Mike Rappaport, Jack Balkin from Yale. We have critics of uh, a critic of originalism who speaks, Tom Colby from GW, and we also go to the Supreme Court and we meet with our originalist justices. This year we'll be meeting with just with Justice uh, Gorsuch on Monday, and we'll be meeting with Justice Thomas on Thursday. We have Justice Thomas Lee lecturing uh, on on a corpus linguistics, a very exciting field of originalism. Judge Diane Sykes will be talking on on wh- how you put the originalism uh, meaning of the right to keep and bear arms into effect as a, as an appellate court judge. Uh, so we have a five intensive day training on the state of the art of originalism with the idea of training people who will one day uh, maybe be writing their own judicial opinions or at least be helping judges write opinions as clerks um, uh, do originalism the right way because not every way it's done is always the right way. It sounds like a great program. So along with several other law professors, you're a contributor to the Bullet Conspiracy blog. Could you tell us how you got into blogging and what value do you think this provides to the legal community? Well, I think blogging is wonderful. I feel guilty that I don't blog more. Uh, I really feel like I'm letting down my fellow conspirators on the ballot <laughs> conspiracy by not by not blogging more. Uh, it's a tremendous way of making what today would now almost considering long form arguments. I mean, and I understand Twitter today went up to 280 characters, so now we can all make longer tweets, which is great, <laughs> uh, I suppose. But uh, blogging is even longer than that, and uh, it allows me to make uh, a more comprehensive argument and bring that to the attention of the public, and it also also allows me to refer to uh, real scholarship, which blogging really isn't. Uh, so, for example, Evan Burnick and I have a new article, out, a new paper uh, that is not an article yet on uh, the uh, on um, um, originalism, a, presenting a unified theory of originalism. And I was able to blog about this on the Vala conspiracy and advertise the paper. And I actually was at a restaurant last night. Uh, here in town, and somebody came up and introduced themselves to me, recognized me, introduced themselves to me, and said, I just read your paper with Evan Burnick, and I think it's great. Only and, in D.C. <laughs> only in D.C., and, 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 but blogging is what made that happen. Great. Um, so to change topics a little bit, you've had some experience in Hollywood. Can you tell us about your tell us about your role in a 2000 movie Inalienable? Yes. Well, I have to be clear in, in in the interest of full disclosure, it was the film was shot in Silmar, California, so it wasn't literally shot in Hollywood, <laughs> but Silmar is on the outskirts of uh, of LA. Um, and it was in a studio there. It's a science fiction movie, believe it or not. I play – I portray an assistant prosecutor. Uh, the prosecutor is played by Marina Sirtis who was in Star Trek Next Generation. She played Counselor Deanna Troy. In fact, it was written 
uh, by Walter Koenig, who was Chekhov on the original Star Trek series, and many of the character, many of the act- actors are Star Trek or science fiction actors in their own right. I had uh, two glorious lines in the movie, <laughs> which put me. Uh, I was no, I was not an extra. The extras all envied me because I actually had a line, and uh, I portrayed a, a criminal prosecutor. Uh, you guys ask, what is a? Why would I be portraying a prosecutor? Why would there be any prosecutors in an, in a science fiction movie? So let me just say briefly, uh, this was a science fiction movie about an alien child that was born to a human and the federal government sees that child. Um, and so the human, um, uh, the father, um, along with a lawyer, brought p- petition for writ of habeas corpus to free the child. And then the last third of the movie is a courtroom drama about that. Um, and that's where I came into the movie. And you can all, it's available on Amazon uh, as a download. Uh, if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch this movie for free. And I only have two lines. They are extremely important. They're at the end of the movie. They kick off the final scene. But I'm visible in the last third of the movie quite prominently. <laughs> how, did, how did you uh, get this role? Did you um, audition? Uh, I did not have to audition. Uh, there was a lawyer in Connecticut who apparently became a libertarian because he read my book, The Structure of Liberty, and he decided he would go to Hollywood and make his way and try to advance liberty that way. And he ultimately became connected with a bunch of Star Trek actors and helped co-produce this movie. And he approached me by email and said, uh, would love for your help on the script because it had a legal dimension and would I punch up the script because Walter Koenig's no lawyer and the, believe me, the legal stuff needed a lot of work. And, I, and he said, if you were on the script. There's a part in the movie for you if you want it. And I said, done, sold. Um, it, I didn't even know. I don't have a bucket list, but if I had one, this would be on it. And I showed up there. And I guess I didn't really believe it was a real movie until I came on set and saw that it was a real movie because I didn't really – it was a real movie because I was going to be in it. But once I showed up, I yeah. realized it was a real movie. I had my own trailer, by the way. Wow. Uh, yeah. But on the name – I didn't have my name on the trailer. It said Barry's assistant, which was my character's name in tape. Um, and it was it was just a, a, a ton of fun for a movie fan like me. So you, you've played a prosecutor uh, in, in a movie, and earlier in your career, you spent some time in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office in Chicago. So it's been depicted in some TV shows as a pretty corrupt office. I don't know if you're familiar with The Good Wife, but it's a central feature of that show. So what was it like in real life? Uh, well, I don't watch The Good Life, but I actually have consulted with the writers of The Good Life on a couple occasions. Really? And, wow. And the reason is because my trial partner in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office is the technical advisor for The Good Wife. And he handles all the – he gives them all the advice on on trial techniques and that stuff. But whenever they cross into constitutional territory, he really knows nothing about that. So he <laughs> sent them to me on two occasions. And so I was on the phone with the writer's room in L.A. telling them – you know, giving them guidance on this. Um, I actually didn't know that the good wife portrayed the DA's office, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office as corrupt. I'm going to have to complain to Irv about that. Uh, in fact, when I was there, uh, the, the Circuit Court of Cook County was ex- was extremely corrupt. Uh, operation Greylord was taking place unbeknownst to us, which was an undercover sting operation of the federal government. Unbeknownst to me, one of my closest friends in the state's attorney's office who was a groomsman at my wedding, and I, he and I had a falling out because I thought he'd become a corrupt lawyer. And it wasn't until I was a law professor when it was revealed there was this investigation. Investigation and he was an FBI undercover mole portraying <laughs> wow. himself as a, a law as an and in fact I'll be going to the Northwestern football game with him on Saturday um, and so uh, but I, the, the surprise of my experience I came into the criminal justice system kind of jaded and cynical even as a young man and what was surprising to me about it was how not corrupt the Cook County State's Attorney's Office was the mm-hmm. system was corrupt the, a lot of the judges were. 
But I saw no evidence of corruption amongst my colleagues. There were 550 of us back then. There were a few, I'm sure, and you know, but it was so uh, uh, unlike, unusual that I didn't really know about it. So actually, the, I don't know what the office is like today, but when I was there, the office was really quite clean while everyone around us seemed to be um, not so much. Interesting. So uh, changing gears a bit, you're going to be doing a big debate at the annual Federal Society Convention debating uh, Akhil Amar on Lochner versus New York. Still crazy after all these years. Could you give us a little preview? Yeah, well, I love this debate topic because all I have to prove as the con is the negative is that it's not crazy. <laughs> I love that. You know, it's like it'd be, yeah, I don't have to prove it's right. I just have to prove it's not crazy. Um, and uh, I, I'll be very interested to hear what Akil has to say. He gets to go first, which is good. I'll get to hear what he has to say first. But I think it's going to be pretty easy to establish that Lochner not only was not considered crazy at the time it was decided, it ended up being politicized later by Theodore Roosevelt when he was running on the Progressive Party ticket in 1912, which was several years after Lochner. But in fact, the reasoning of Lochner, if, if you actually read the case, it's pretty reasonable. Um, and it, it, it is not as depicted. It's the stereotype of Lochner. Um, that is normally discussed. And my goal at this debate is going to try to uh, demythologize Lochner and talk about the real Lochner and not the one that people use as the bogeyman to scare uh, young and impressionable law students uh, in, <laughs> uh, so that they wake up screaming in the middle of the night. Um, so speaking of Lochner, Texas Supreme Court Justice Don Willett, who was recently nominated to the Fifth Circuit, has been getting some flack for an opinion he wrote in an occupational licensing case. Um, Willett said that he wouldn't be scared off by the Lochner boogeyman. Uh, what's the best argument for reassuring conservatives who may be concerned about reinvigorating economic liberties via the courts? Well, um, I don't want to say anything that would in any way jeopardize Judge Willett's – Justice Willett's uh, chances for confirmation. Um, I think he's been known to say that, the, that the part of Lochner that he agrees with is Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion in Lochner which is substantially different than Justice Holmes' dissenting opinion. So Justice Holmes would basically give the government a carte blanche to do whatever they want. And that's the position that, for example, uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, hailed in his dissenting opinion in the Obergefell case when he mentioned Lochner 13 times as the bogeyman. <laughs> um, but Justice Willis, uh, I think, says that he subscribes to Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion, which basically says that you give the government the benefit of the doubt, but it is conceivable that government might be up to something it's not supposed to be up to. And in this case, um, it was helping out – in this particular case, it was helping out uh, labor as opposed to management, which is not really a function of health and safety at all. And so the Lochner court uh, – first of all, the majority of the Lochner court upheld an entire health and safety regulation that was called the Bake Shop Act and only questioned one provision, the maximum hours law, because it seemed not to have a health and safety rationale. And Harlan thought it had a, substan a sufficient health and safety law. So what Justice Willis is just asking for the government for is some substantiation – of its claims that it's exercising a proper power, which he – if he's in fact in agreement with Justice Harlan, he would have thought Lochner is correctly decided. But it should have been decided the way Harlan thought, not the way Holmes thought. So speaking of – One other thing about oh, Justice Willett. Sure. In the case that he's going to be asked about, I think it's important to note that he was interpreting the Texas Constitution. Yeah. And that case does not involve the due process clause of the federal constitution, which if he's confirmed is what he'll be called upon to interpret. I think that's important for everybody listening to know. Yeah. So speaking of Justice Willett, also known as the Twitter laureate of Texas, he went silent after his recent nomination to the Fifth Circuit and there have been outcries for him to return to Twitter – what are your thoughts? Do you think judges should refrain from tweeting? 
I think persons who have been nominated and are about to undergo public confirmation hearing should refrain from tweeting. I think many people should refrain from tweeting. Perhaps I should refrain <laughs> from tweeting. But fortunately for me, I have no higher aspirations and I have tenure. Um, and so unless I really, really mess up, it's not going to cost me a job. It could cost him a job. And I'm sure White House, Cou- White House counsel have advised him to remain silent. And uh, he's very prudent to do so. And that should reassure everybody that Justice Willett is a prudent man. <laughs> I'm very disappointed we didn't get to see his kids' Halloween costumes this year, though. Yeah. Very disappointing. Um so, Randy, you've argued one case before the Supreme Court. Can you tell us about uh, your experience and have you considered leaving academia to be a litigator? Uh, I left litigation to become an academic. Uh, I left trial work. I never had any uh, aspiration to be an appellate court lawyer. I, I went to law school when I was 10 years well, – I decided to go to law school when <laughs> I was 10 years old because I saw a television show called The Defenders and it was a criminal uh, defense father-son team. Um, uh, that uh, in New York. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a criminal lawyer. And that's what I got to do. I wanted to try cases in front of juries. And that's what I got to do. And it was enormously fun. Um, but I prefer the job I, I have now. Um, I got sucked into or drawn into uh, appellate court litigation, despite my Intention. It started like doing the movie Inalienable. That was. It was like uh, you know. I, I can't believe I'm doing it, but now that I'm doing it, well, that's kind of cool to have done that. I, and with respect to arguing in the Supreme Court, it's the same way. I got drawn in because of my interest in the Ninth Amendment. I got drawn into the medical marijuana litigation and eventually was asked to to represent Angel Rachent Diane Monson from the beginning of that case till the end of the case. I argued once. I have never been so scared or anxious about anything I've ever done than I was in the six weeks leading up to that argument. Uh, my wife doesn't ever want me to do it again in part <laughs> for that reason and I agree with her. Um, uh, I, on the day I did it because I was prepared, I think I did OK and I wasn't petrified. It was more like being on trial in a murder case than it was. But for six weeks, I felt like I was going to get an ulcer. Uh, from the pressure. And I can only imagine what it would be like to do it for a living. I, I would not want to do that for a living. But I'm really glad I got to do that. I got to be in a feature film. Um, there's a lot of things I've gotten to do that I never set out to do, <laughs> but I'm glad I did at least once. So one final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, whether living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? My Well, you know, I don't really uh, lionize justices that much. I'm not a justice-centric guy and so I don't have really many heroes um, and I have a lot of peop- justices I don't care for very much. <laughs> um, and so – but I suppose the just one of the justices that I'm in some respects the most fond of, which is ironic in light of our discussion of Lochner, is the first justice, John Marshall Harlan. Because uh, here's a Republican that came out of Kentucky. He was from a slaveholding family but he was not himself one. Um, and he ended up fighting in the Union Army um, and he ends up being a Republican nominee to the, to the court and he ends up dissenting in the slaughterhouse – in the civil rights cases um, which invalidated uh, the first public accommodations laws that was passed by the Republican Congress. And then he, he's the sole dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, which makes him a hero to me. And so I guess what I and, – and he also is the, the justice that wrote the opinion that protected uh, the right of private – that argued that states had to pay just compensation for a takings. This was the first right that was in the Bill of Rights to be applied to the states and it was Justice Harlan who wrote that opinion. And then he writes the dissenting opinion in Lochner. So I'd like to sit down with him and have a conversation with him about just – exactly what his beef was with with the with the court in Lochner and how far did it go and uh, my guess is it didn't go as far 
as today people would like to think it went, that he actually had a, still a very limited view of the role of the legislature. He just wanted to give them a greater benefit of the doubt than I think they deserve. But th- I'd like to have a talk with him about that. That certainly sounds like an interesting conversation. Well, Randy, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate that. And by the way, if you want to have a talk with a clairvoyant talk with Justice Harlan, he's buried here in D.C. and you can go up and visit his grave. Uh, It's up north of here. And uh, we can all go and maybe maybe we should do the next podcast from Justice Harlan's gravesite. It will take a SCOTUS 101 field trip. (laughs) In honor of the Federalist Society hosting its annual lawyers convention this week, we're going to play a round of Supreme Trivia Federalist Society edition. I'm going to try to stump Tiffany, which I think should be an uphill battle for me, considering she was the president of the Federal Society chapter at her law school, the Scalia School of Law. I hope I don't get all these wrong, and then <laughs> Gene Meyer is going to be very mad at me. <laughs> They're going to take your, your former title away from you. <laughs> yes. All right, first question. Are you ready? Yes. Which liberal Supreme Court justice once said, I love the Federalist Society? Oh, Justice Kagan. That's I right. Know this one. That's right. Uh, Elena Kagan said this when she was the dean of Harvard Law School, and the, the school was hosting the Federalist Society's annual student convention uh, that year. Next question. Which of the law students who founded the Federal Society works on the staff today? Ooh. Oh, um, I think it's Lee Lieberman Otis. Yes, that is correct. Yes. Lee Otis is a senior VP. She heads up the faculty division, and this is after serving in several capacities uh, in Republican administrations, working in private practice, and she also served as one of Justice Scalia's first law clerks. Third question. What is the Federal Society's logo? Oh, it's um, a profile of James Madison. That is correct. Man, these are too easy for you. I know. I, <laughs> so um, if you follow Shoshana Wiseman on Twitter, every year for FedSoc, she, she paints a FedSoc logo on her fingernails. And <laughs> I'm, I'm always very excited about it. That would take a, a, a lot of um, time, I think, to, to paint that on your fingernails. But anyway, yeah. I'm impressed. Anyway. Yeah, so, so you're right. It's the silhouette of James Madison, the father of the Constitution and one of the authors of the Federalist Papers. Fourth question. Who were two of the original faculty advisors for the organization? Oh, faculty advisors? Oh, no. I have no idea. Um, they must have been at Yale, right? It was uh, Justice Scalia and Judge Robert Bork who were professors at Chicago and Yale at the time, uh, and and then they went on to become colleagues at the D.C. Circuit. I did not know they were faculty advisors. They were indeed. <laughs> so uh, fifth question, final one. Yes. How many of the current Supreme Court justices have an affiliation with the Federalist Society? I mean, I don't think any of them have an official affiliation because I don't know if they're they're allowed to. But um, Or at one time at had one an official time? affiliation. Okay. How about that? Um, well, I didn't say official. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> changing it up on you. <laughs> I, I assume Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch. Who am I forgetting? I don't know. I'm just going to go with three. Okay. Well, it was kind of a trick question because all of them have all of the current members have some affiliation with the Federal oh, Society. Oh, because they've spoken at FedSoc. Yes. Okay. So at least according to Wikipedia, Alito, <laughs> Thomas, and Gorsuch have all been card-carrying members, okay. uh, and Roberts, Kennedy, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan have all spoken at FedSoc meetings. Now, 
when Chief Justice Roberts, during his um, confirmation to the Supreme Court, or maybe it was his confirmation to the D.C. Circuit, there was some dispute over whether uh, how involved he had been with the Federalist Society at, at the time. So that was kind of an interesting uh, little footnote also from the Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you did a, a pretty good job, Tiffany, um, you know, getting getting some, you know, some, some obscure, uh, obscure questions, right? So anyway, um, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.